lady. Hello, lady. How are you doing today? I'm feeling great. And I think one of the reasons is that I'm feeling really optimistic. Oh my goodness. After talking with all of these scientific experts about environmental pollutants, how on earth could you be so optimistic? Well, I can't help but to celebrate the bright side of things. And one of the obvious bright sides of things is that we've talked with some really awesome women scientists. You know, you're right. Compared to some scientific disciplines, it seems that there have been some really great opportunities for women to participate in studying EDCs, but also to be leaders in the field. Endocrine-disrupting chemicals can clearly affect women's health. We've heard quite a bit about that from the scientists we've met. But today seems like a good day to take a break from the science and talk about how women have succeeded within the field. Or, in some cases, have made their way in the field, even if they had to break through barriers to get there. I'm Elise. And I'm Jillian. And today's episode of A Daily Dose is going to focus on the women in the field of endocrine disruptors. Because if young women listening to this podcast want to jump in and start with the difficult task of tackling the many problems that are posed by EDCs, we also need to tackle some of the issues that keep women out of the field. Even though many of the women we've talked to are real stars in their fields, many of them told us about their struggles to get where they are today. Even the younger scientists told us of some challenges they have encountered. So while the picture looks brighter than it did a few years ago, we clearly still have work to do. In this episode, we will include portions of conversations we've had with several women scientists. We'll introduce you to each of these rock stars as we make our way through their stories and experiences. women, I think one of the things we are thinking about is whether we can pursue a career but also have a life. I mean, marriage and babies are still many years down the road for me, but they are something I at least hope to consider. Absolutely. I was watching that movie, The Martian, the other day, and I was thinking about what it might be like to be an astronaut, committed to my job for years at a time, knowing how that might affect my health including my reproductive choices. I don't think you need to worry about being shipped into space anytime soon, but I understand your point. Many young women are looking at college, then graduate school, then maybe postgraduate work. Scientists often complete a postdoc, which is like a medical school residency. During that period, you're working all the time in the lab, but you don't yet have an independent position. It's a lot of pressure to succeed, but also to find your next big job. Because that next job might be as a project manager in industry or as a professor in academia. And those jobs can be rare and very competitive. So people taking those jobs are just working, working, working. And that can get in the way of the rest of your life. Dr. Genoa Warner, a new faculty member at the New Jersey Institute of Technology, talked about this conundrum a bit when we met with her. And my personal belief is that, you know, don't wait for your career. Like if you're otherwise ready to to have a family and, 
you just think like, well, maybe the next step, it'll be easier. Maybe once I get the next job or once I get tenure, um, you know, there's always, there's never a perfect time. If you're otherwise ready, just do it. You know, I wonder if Dr. Warner was ever worried about being exposed to chemicals in the lab. I mean, she was pregnant while working on several different chemicals, both as a chemist when she was doing her doctoral research, and then again during her postdoctoral studies. That is one of the issues that women do think about and talk about when working in labs. Imagine that you're studying the effects of hormones on rats. You still have to handle those hormones. But scientists wear PPE, personal protective equipment, like gloves and goggles and lab coats. True, but there are always concerns that exposures can still occur. Because, as we've learned, even low-level exposures can matter. But Dr. Warner talked about her concerns. I was more worried when I was actually pregnant um, about my own exposures then. Um, So I stopped working in the lab when I was in graduate school and I was pregnant and I was just about to finish up, I, I stopped working in the lab when I was pregnant and just wrote my thesis because that was when I would have had the most exposure when I was making Tamils. Um, and then in my, in my postdoc lab, I'm mostly handling animals and doing cell culture. Um, that's not a high risk of, of chemical exposures and we don't work with diseases or anything. So that was also, um, that was you know a fairly low risk environment. So. I don't worry about it so much um, bringing it home because, you know, I change my shoes and, and things like that. Um, and I don't, I don't work with very hazardous materials. I don't, I don't like to do that anyways. Um, you know, I'm just working on phthalates, which we come home and are in our kitchen <laughs> anyways. Um, but during pregnancy, I think it's really important. Wow. She's right that exposures to many of these chemicals happen in our everyday lives. That's certainly the case for phthalates. So she had used caution, protecting herself from the chemicals by using precaution and PPE. But she also recognized the need to be hyper-vigilant during her own pregnancies. And recognizing that for some of these chemicals, there's still not enough known about what effects they might have on the woman themselves. We will come back to that issue later in this episode, because several of the women we talked to had ideas about where research into women's health needs to go. It definitely seems like the world of science has become more welcoming to women. In our conversations with Dr. Linda Birnbaum, former director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences at the NIH, she told us about how hard it was just to be seen and heard. Early in her career, she often felt ignored or like her ideas were being dismissed just because of her gender. You know, women have been socialized to be agreeable, um, not to cause problems, to please people, to help people. So, for example, negotiating for a higher salary I think most women find that really, really difficult thing to do. Um, I think I'd often be in meetings where I might be the only woman or there'd be one other. And I would say something that I, first of all, I had a fight to be heard frequently. And I'm not so quiet as you can tell. Um, (laughs) but, But I often felt like nobody was listening to me. You know, it didn't matter what I said. 
you know, they kind of finally, oh yeah, let her speak. And then they would go back to whatever they were saying. Now that doesn't mean then I would, you know, a week later or two weeks later, there'd be some guy saying just what I had said, but it was in his mind, he was the one who thought of it. Um, so I, I do think it's harder for women. Yeah. And Dr. Birnbaum talked about how being one of the only women working in her field, at least early in her career, meant that she had to figure out a lot of things on her own. I mean, she is so clearly a strong, capable, and intelligent woman. But that must have been very hard. I think it's undoubted that um, now things may be changing, hopefully, but I think as a woman in science, you had to work harder and actually do better than the men. I think there was not the expectation for women that they would be successful in doing science. And the other thing is, is that in many ways, you had an old boys club that you had to deal with. Um, the number of the times you'd see guys follow each other into the men's room because they were having a discussion and obviously you weren't gonna follow too. Um, that's changed a little now. Sometimes you go with some of the other women scientists, but I would say that, you know, things I think are getting better. Um, when I was a young scientist, there were very few, really relatively few women in grad school. Today, you got lots of women in grad school. You got lots of women postdoc, but we do have the situation where women drop out more so than men. And a lot of that is because, you know, it's only, we're the only ones that can have the babies. And the time of your fertility is the time when you're also supposed to be getting tenure, for example, or something like that. And we as a society have not figured out a good way, you know, how do we deal with this? Just saying, oh, we'll give you an extra year in your tenure clock doesn't solve the, the issue. And there are certainly some ways that these problems continue to persist in the world of science, even in this area of research, which seems to have leveled the playing field quite a bit. One of the difficulties that young women, people of color, folks that identify as LGBTQ, and others that can feel marginalized experience is that they can feel like they are the only one. And that can put a lot of pressure on them. Yeah, the pressure to represent others from their identity group, or pressure to answer questions, even from well-meaning colleagues. It can just be a burden to have to educate others about your experience walking around in your own skin. Although things have certainly improved in the decades since Dr. Birnbaum first entered the world of science, there is still a need to address inequalities. For example, it was only in 2019 that Dr. Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, pledged to decline to speak at conferences that had all-male panels. Panels? Well, at conferences, there's usually a lineup of speakers, and sometimes small groups that will serve as discussants. Usually, it is an honor to be asked to speak on one of these panels. And unfortunately, even in just the last few years, at some conferences, those panels continue to exclude women. But probably not on purpose. No, but I think that's the point. 
Organizers of conferences aren't always thinking about how younger scientists in the field view themselves as belonging, or not, based on who they see at conferences. So representation matters. And again, as Dr. Birnbaum says, that representation or lack of representation isn't just about women. You know, there are still times where I'll be on a platform on a panel or at a symposium where I'll be the only woman. And certainly there are many times where there are no people of color involved at all. Now, again, that's changing. Um, there are real efforts being made, but I think frequently white people don't know even where to go look um, to identify people with opportunities. We can do better. Things are better than they were years ago, but we still have a ways to go. And in some ways, it's silly to think that we still need to talk about this. Because women have been making tremendous contributions to science for decades. This is especially true for studies of EDCs. Representation is important. When young scientists see someone who looks like them who has been successful in the field, it helps them to envision their own success. There are actually several different scientific disciplines that contribute to the study of endocrine disruptors. Scientists come from fields as varied as endocrinology, chemistry, developmental biology, toxicology, physiology, ecology, conservation science, epidemiology, and on and on. And there are also clinical fields represented here, including pediatrics, andrology, gynecology, and obstetrics, neurology, immunology, and endocrinology, among others. From the perspective of disciplines, it's quite a diverse field of study. We were super excited to speak with Dr. Gail Prince, a professor of urology and physiology at the University of Illinois at Chicago, who has been a leader in the fields of andrology and urology. Dr. Prince is an expert in diseases of the prostate, and her lab has contributed more than 100 scientific publications toward understanding this organ. But because andrology is the study of diseases related to men, Dr. Prince talks about how some male scientists reacted to her decision to work in this field. You know, when I began years ago, a very long time ago, um, and I was working on sperm. My thesis work as a doctoral student was on sperm transport. And I remember meeting a guest of my thesis advisor. And he said, why is it a nice young woman like you working on male reproduction? And I was just aghast at the question of the stupidity of the question. I wasn't embarrassed at all. I was a feminist. And, um, and I just said, well, I, I had decided I wanted to work on reproduction. And to me, male reproduction, female reproduction, what difference does it make? And um, I didn't think twice about it. Um, but I think men are uncomfortable having women in the field and they're uncomfortable going into the field. So that results in less that's known about it. Wow. So she's saying that men were uncomfortable having women in the field, studying male reproduction. 
but they're also just uncomfortable talking about their own reproductive health in general. Exactly. And that can really stunt the field. If men don't want to talk about reproductive health, then clinical research can get stuck. So having someone like Dr. Prinz in the field has been instrumental. She has been asking questions about the effects of estrogens on the prostate that no one else had asked before her. She's been a leader, pushing the field forward. And her work on BPA alone has led to incredible leaps and bounds in our knowledge. But, as she tells us, it hasn't necessarily been easy. I had no questions or qualms about it, but um, there were a lot of roadblocks in the field going that way, um, particularly in the field of urology. The, the, the field of urology um, is behind it compared, although it is changing and they're trying, um, it's behind compared to other fields of medicine and the number of women who are in it. I mean, in basic science, um, a lot more women are populating uh, reproductive research and uh, prostate research as well. Although my whole life, I found myself in a room full of men. And, um, and that's no matter what field you're in, if you're in business, um, if you're in whatever field, if you're within a room full of men, you're going to be discriminated against. Um, and so I fought with that my whole life. And it's been difficult. I could have been the president of the hospital if I wasn't a female by now um, with, with knowing what I can do and how I've been held back both in terms of the salary um, that I've been given throughout my career and clawing for it, um, the, the good appointments on the good committees, you know, all these things that slow you down as you're trying to move ahead. And, and they've been very, very irritating and anger provoking. And at some point, you just have to uh, keep your nose to the grindstone and keep doing it. And um, I'm, uh, I'm very, I'm aggressive, and I speak my mind freely, um, and not always in the nicest language. So people know where I stand. And, um, but I grew up in New Jersey, so that's my excuse. But, um, you know, it, 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 you can dwell on it and then it can kill you. Um, you could try and rise above it. It sounds like her experiences were quite a bit similar to the ones that Dr. Birnbaum shared with us. Yeah, but it's obvious that both of these women found ways to push through. I mean, look at what they've accomplished. We also had the opportunity to ask some of the female scientists about their views on women's health. Several of these scientists expressed concerns that there just isn't enough research into the kinds of effects that have been documented in women, or research that addresses concerns raised by women out in the world. I mean, obviously, I think we need more, more research into chemicals and exposures and prenatal exposures, risks for mothers. Um, it would be nice to see more research that actually focused on the mother and not just the offspring. We often forget about the mother <laughs> after we um, have moved on to look at the child. That was Dr. Genoa Warner, who notes that we have not spent nearly as much time looking at the health of mothers. 
And Nona's saying that we shouldn't study the effects of chemical exposures on babies that are being exposed to EDCs in the womb. That's super important research. But for many years, pregnant women have been treated like a vessel, merely a carrier for the truly important cargo. This means that we are years or decades behind where we should be in understanding how environmental chemicals might impact the mother's health. Dr. Gail Prince also points out that funds are not equally distributed to study health issues that affect women compared to the issues that affect men. If you look at the research dollars that are expended out of the NIH, um, they're a, a fraction of what is spent on female reproductive research is spent on male reproductive research. Um, and I do that, think that there is probably um, a subconscious bias that contributes to that. With a lot of people not wanting to discuss it. And it's even more complicated than that. Because in our discussion with Dr. Heather Patasal, a neuroendocrinologist and toxicology professor from North Carolina State University, she pointed out that even studies of diseases that impact men and women are flawed. It sounds like, for many years, women were often left out of clinical research studies. Yeah, so unfortunately, traditionally, almost all of our biomedical research has been done in males. And that's ridiculous because women are not like males with ovaries, right? And women have other differences besides just the reproductive parts. So for example, female immune systems are much more sensitive than males. And the whole COVID thing is illustrating that on a ginormous scale. So females with COVID look very different than males with COVID. They get a different set of um, symptoms. Females and males are responding differently to the vaccine. Um, again, that's not surprising given that the immune system is highly sexually dimorphic and females are at greater risk for autoimmune disorders, right? So if we're really gonna be serious about healthcare, um, we need to look at that biology that's different between males and females so that we're delivering the best medicine for everyone. Some drugs work well in males and terrible in females and, and some is the reverse, right? In some cases, it wasn't just clinical research that avoided studying women. Even rodent studies often examine only the males. And as Dr. Pattisall explains, researchers had explanations for why they would focus on males. Well, excuses more than explanations. Uh, you know, it's always, oh, it's more complicated. Oh, it's just easier to do it with males. Oh, females have too many hormone fluctuations. You're never going to be able to figure out what's going on. And those are all really lame excuses, to be quite honest. So I think we can get past that. I think, you know, there's complicated things with working on males too, and males should not be our default. Um, and especially when we're thinking about future generations and how chemicals are gonna impact generations beyond us, you have to- All too often, the issues that affect women's health get swept under the rug, but things are changing. At NIH, for example, when researchers apply for grant funding, they now need to explain how they will account for differences between males and females. And females can no longer be excluded from studies, at least when the studies are examining diseases that impact women. But the other stuff, the stuff about scientific culture and the struggles that women scientists face, continue to persist. 
Even if they are getting better, things are still not totally equal. And a lot of younger women scientists are uncomfortable talking about these issues because they don't want to be seen as whining. I've just got to stop you right there and throw down my feminist hammer. It's not whining to identify inequalities or to ask that they be addressed. Oh, I'm right there with you. But that doesn't mean that it's easy to talk about these things, which is one reason why we still have to work together. This isn't just a problem for women to solve. Men have to be a part of the solution as well. Dr. Linda Birnbaum has a suggestion of where we can start. You know, it's very hard to be the only one and the only one of, of your kind, whether it's because you're, you're the only woman or the, you're the only person of color, you know, or the only person who's um, English of a second language or something like that. You know, it's much easier if there are other people who look like you. You need great mentors and not necessarily one, you may need several. And I think that has been um, a problem for women and especially women of color to find the great mentors. I think that's what has been such an incredible part of being a member of this podcasting team. We've been able to support each other, but we have also met so many scientists that are supportive of students and supportive of each other. We never had to be the only one. We are grateful to all of the women scientists that we met with, but extend special thanks to Drs. Jenna Warner, Linda Birnbaum, Gail Prince, and Heather Patasol for their contributions to this episode. A Daily Dose is a production of the SCOPE Summer Research Program at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. SCOPE is funded by a grant from the National Institutes of Health, National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. These episodes were written and produced by Jillian Hughes, Mayra Lima, Hennessy's Medina, Elise Pierce, Hannah Power, and Jody Zismore.